Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. This podcast is dedicated to continuing the conversations that Dr. Hyman and I started during the Broken Brain series. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help improve your brain health, help you feel better, and most importantly, live your best life. Today's guest on the podcast is my friend, Dr. Will Cole. Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine and wellness expert. He specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunction, digestive disorders, and what we care about, brain problems. Although it's all connected, we're going to get into that into the podcast. Dr. Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is a health expert for Mind Body Green and Goop and many other websites. Dr. Cole is the author of the newly released book, Ketotarian, in which he melds the powers and benefits of a ketogenic diet with a plant-based one. Dr. Cole lives in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with his family and consults locally and online with people around the world through the power of the internet. You can learn more about him and working with him and everything else he does at drwillcole.com. Dr. Cole, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm excited to jump in. Ketotarian, super fascinating name of a book. Let's start at the basics as we always do on this podcast. What's a little bit of the history of the ketogenic diet for those that are not familiar? The ketogenic diet, it really has its roots in ancient history. A lot of, even Hippocrates referenced it. So it has its roots in ancient medicine and wisdom, um, but it gets its name from nutritional ketosis. It's burning fat for fuel. And we have two sort of forms of fuel for our body, metabolically speaking. You can burn sugar for fuel or burn fat for fuel. Uh, and ketosis is a fat burning state and it's allowing your body to naturally produce ketones, which is a form of fuel. Uh, but it's also has a lot of great, exciting research around it today uh, of other applications. It's a good epigenetic modulator. It balances our immune system. It supports these antioxidant pathways. It's a strong anti-inflammatory, which is amazing research for the brain. But it in modern, more modern uh, science, the explosion in our lifetime was epilepsy and seizure research. And research shows and the clinical application of it being a life changer for people with epilepsy and seizures, mainly children, but adults as well. Um, but today it's far beyond that. And the clinical applications, people are applying it for other autoimmune conditions, autism, MS, and so on and so forth. And it's something as a functional medicine practitioner that I've seen over the past decade, it be a game changer for someone's wellness journey. Incredible. Thank you for that background. In fact, my own mother was put on a modified ketogenic diet for her breast cancer by a, one of our prior guests, doctor from our clinic, Dr. Liz Bohm. So let's talk about ketotarian. That's your twist on ketogenic what is the twist exactly, and why did you create it? So Ketotarian was really born out of my clinical experience, out of my own wellness journey, and seeing the potential pitfalls in the conventional keto world where 
they see the initial benefits of being in ketosis. They're going off of a lot of inflammatory foods. They see weight loss, they increase energy, all these cool stuff. But sustainably, I see a lot of pitfalls. They're depending a lot on dairy, depending a lot on meats and bacon. And you look on Instagram and all the hashtag keto stuff are a lot of animal products, which in the short term is better than the standard American diet. But long term, the concern I have for the microbiome and the avoidance of plant foods because they are afraid of the carb content. So they are avoiding it. Uh, so sustainably, I saw a problem. So I, I know the benefits of being plant-based. I know the benefits of being in ketosis for people. So I wanted really the amalgamation of both worlds. And that's where Ketotarian, the, my play on words for that, uh, was born. It's almost like uh, the paleo diet has become, in some cases, a little bit more of a carnivore diet. Instead of really its roots, paleolithically, uh, we had a lot of fiber in our diet that primarily came from the carbs in vegetables. Exactly, yeah, so I, and I think it's trending now. The carnivore diet is definitely trending right now. So, and again, I don't say that it's, it's better than the standard American diet, but better doesn't mean optimal. Uh, and I'm concerned with sustainable wellness, not just a short-term thing. I want to, how can you live like this? How can you be like this? So that's, ketotarian is sustainable wellness. You can do anything for a short period of time and feel better. You can eat all fruits for a short period of time and feel better. And so it's great that you're putting this twist. And, and especially as a functional medicine practitioner, the difference between, let's say, a functional medicine practitioner and somebody who might be a vegan doctor, maybe approaching all their patients and having them be vegan, is that you're, you're not really as concerned with what people are eating, but more what they're eating to support their root functions that are happening in the body. You're looking at gut health. You're looking at detox pathways, mitochondrial function, and, and many, many others. So you're not attached to any one way of doing things. But that doesn't mean that your own personal experience doesn't shape the way that you uh, work with people. You have a very fascinating background of how you arrived to also this change and this twist of ketotarian in your own life. Tell me about that a little bit and tell our listeners about your dietary uh, journey. Yeah, so ketotarian really began a long time ago in a faraway place in rural Pennsylvania in the 1980s when I was growing up. And like life in America in the 80s, let alone in rural Pennsylvania, wasn't like a wellness mecca like it is today on social media and obviously in Los Angeles and the big, bigger cities. The people were eating the standard American diet, frosted flakes, I mean, kids living at that time. Uh, I feel like cereal. when I was young, like cereal yeah. really was at its peak. I mean, yeah. people would eat cereal Oh yeah, I would and eat cereal three times a day. Yeah, and <laughs> there were toys in cereals. I mean, this is like a thing. Uh, I wasn't. I my parents were interested in wellness. I was the kid drinking like weird herbal tonics uh, in the '80s and '90s. So I had that sort of perspective on health. Um, and then from there, I, I was 17 years old. I was learning about the food industry and CAFOs and factory farming, and I really decided to be a vegan at that point with with good intentions and over the, the subsequent 10 years i was a vegan can i, can I interrupt you for one yes, second of course. um wh what was it that you saw was it a documentary was it a book was it your parents what was the thing that you saw because i mean it's it's real the violence the factory farm violence that happens to animals and there's no kind of 
denying that. I'm always curious about what started somebody's journey. Do you remember for you what yeah, it was? It was a library book. I forget what it was, but it was a book about the food industry at that time. Uh, and that paired with my youth was, I thought, okay, this is the better thing to do. And again, just as we said earlier, just because something's better doesn't mean it's optimal, but I was definitely felt a lot better for a lot of years. I was a vegan for 10 years, but towards, you know, years eight, nine, 10, I noticed my digestion not going so well. I was more fatigued. Uh, it was catching up with me a few things that I was missing and I was eating real foods, sprouted grains, legumes. The problem was I have autoimmune conditions on both sides of my family. I have the MTHFR gene mutation, which means my body's not that good at methylating. It's not converting uh, folic acid into folate properly. And I wasn't getting a lot of activated B vitamins in my vegan diet. Um, and I had to really come to grips with the fact of this depending on sugar, depending, depending on higher lectin and carbohydrate inflammatory foods to varying degrees uh, was better for a time, but it was the evolution of my wellness journey. Um, so I didn't have to abandon my principles, but I, that was my shift into more of this ketotarian, plant-based ketogenic approach um, in my late 20s. Uh, do you remember it being a difficult transition? You know, you grew up in this wellness family. Did now that you were eating a little bit differently, were they also eating differently too? Did you have support around you? Yeah, it was funny because I, my parents never, my family never really ate like me fully. They were always ate real foods. They had organic everything, all that stuff. But I really was on my own journey from that point. But I think support systems are important. You know, you don't always have that. People don't always have that luxury. But uh, for me, I was doing my own thing. I knew what I wanted to do even when I was, you know, even when I, Whatever decision I made, I was doing it because I wanted to, not because of people around me. What were some of the health benefits you saw? I mean, this is a time before, did you have a name for your diet? You know, there was no ketotarian back then. There was yeah. no ketogenic back then. Yeah. Did you have a name for your diet? And what were some of the benefits that you saw firsthand? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I knew of ketosis, just of the research that was done. It was definitely not popular. It was sort of obscure. Um, but no, I just was eating lower carb eating is really what it was. And I brought fish into my diet. And what I talk about in Ketotarian is to go for eight weeks with being plant-based keto. And there's vegan, vegetarian, and pescatarian options. So if you want to be completely vegan keto, you have that option in Ketotarian. But there's room and home for the vegetarians and the pescatarians too. Um, and that's really was my, depending on how I felt on the day and what I preferred, I would kind of ebb and flow from there. But I brought things like fish in. And then after the initial stage, I even occasionally I'll have grass-fed beef and I enjoyed that, but I'm still plant-centric. And ketotarian is really, my goal was at least to be a home for the plant-based world that aren't doing so well and they want another option they want to try this keto thing out without abandoning how they feel they feel all right being plant-based they feel consciously that's the right thing to do but on the other side i wanted to recalibrate the ketogenic world and give them an option and, and say wow i can do my diet in a way that's not always eating bacon and cheese yeah one of our mutual friends max lugavera has uh on his instagram page um two photos side by side one is basically like eggs and a little bit of grass-fed beef. And it says underneath it, like, this is keto. And another one is like, still has some eggs, still a little bit of grass-fed beef, but a plate full of 
vegetables. And he's like, this is also keto. So yeah. it's about shaping and expanding what people think is possible. You know, you work with a lot of people who have serious health issues and using the functional medicine approach, you help them get to the root of it. And, and part of it, I'm guessing, is you have put many of your patients that were not feeling well eating one way of plant-based or vegetarian, you, you switch them to a ketotarian approach. Uh, what are some of the health benefits you saw with your own patients when they started to include and get some more high-quality fats and get rid of some of the low-quality carbs? Yeah. So by the time patients meet me, they typically are eating way better than the standard American diet. They have been on this wellness journey for a while. They are beyond, you know, don't eat junk food. They are very wellness-minded, but despite their best efforts, they're still struggling. Despite doing everything right on the surface, on paper, they're still having health problems. So I'm used to difficult cases and I'm used to having to dig deeper to find out what's missing from the health puzzle. Part of that, and that's why I wrote Ketotarian, is to show them that they don't they can really shift the foods that they're focusing on to metabolically be more flexible and to lower inflammation levels. So one of the amazing clinical applications that I love about ketosis is the impact the beta-hydroxybutyrate, the main ketone, has on inflammatory pathways. The fact that it can inhibit NF-kappa-B pathways, a way that promotes AMPK pathways, which is the, pro the, the um, pro-antioxidant and inhibits these pro-inflammatory pathways. So all the great stuff that I want, ketosis can do, but guess what? Being plant-based also inhibits NF-kappa-B and and upregulates NRF2 pathways. All the same cool stuff that ketosis does. So can't we amplify both worlds? And that's what I tried to do with the book. You know, it seems like we're at an interesting place in the world of uh, health and wellness. Number one, I'm just happy that people are talking about it. But uh, because it's grown and because it's larger, you have different approaches that people see out there. Uh, you know, there was a movie that was popular at the end of last year, beginning of this year on Netflix called What the Health? You familiar with that I film? I am familiar with it. So, you know, in, in the plant-based vegan community, there's one approach, which is a little bit of like the what the health approach, which is that fat is bad for you, right? I mean, even some of the doctors featured in that documentary say oil is bad for you. Don't use olive oil. Don't use avocado oil and things like that. And, um, you know, here you are. You're telling uh, somebody who might have seen that film a different way about thinking. I don't know if I have a question as much as like, do you have any commentary? Yeah. You know, it seems kind of crazy that there's yeah. that primarily the plant-based world, there's sort of two worlds and two schools of thought. One is that fat is bad for you. And one that fat is not only good for you, but essential for you. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, our colleagues in this space, I showed them the book that I was going to write and their colleagues that are in that film. Um, people like uh, Dr. Garth Davis, uh, Rich Roll, I, I don't know if he was on that or not, uh, and Joel Kahn specifically. Um, Joel Kahn wrote a kind, loving blurb about ketotarian, um, and I thought that was huge. I think I, some of those guys in that camp are really seeing the benefits of this, and they're coming around to seeing that, wait, 
We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. It's not us versus them mentality where they have to sort of malign everything about something that doesn't even look like the traditional vegan diet. I think a lot of those guys are really exploring intermittent fasting and ketosis and healthy fats in their own life. And I do see a shift, a positive shift, maybe not for everybody in, on that side of the vegan world, but maybe in, in a loving way, I'm here to disrupt that vegan thought and realize in the plant-based thought and to show them there's a different way of doing it. You can still be plant-centric uh, and be fat adapted. Uh, and depending on carbs and legumes and lectins works for a time for people, but there are many people that sustainably, they don't thrive on that way of eating, but they still can be plant-centric. Um, so yeah, it, I, I, uh, I hope to spark the conversation in the plant-based world of a different way of doing it. And it's not just me. I mean, there's Walter Longo uh, with the fasting mimicking diet. It's a plant-based ketogenic approach. It is a higher plant fat approach. And, you know, he recommends doing it for about five days a month. So even rounds like a cyclic, cyclic sort of ketogenic approach, it's people in the plant-based world are coming around to that idea. Yeah, that's great. It seems like part of it is because in the vegan community, there, there's still this belief that saturated fat is bad for you. And so help us just unpack that a little bit, because again, I think it's useful to understand things in context and, you know, people are hearing you and you're making a lot of common sense right now, but sometimes we have to unpack maybe a little bit of what they heard before. So, so why is it that saturated fat in the traditional plant-based community was seen as a bad thing? And, and how is it that now actually we're seeing that Saturated fat is not the enemy. It actually could be a, a good thing to have in your diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, uh, again, they they lumped saturated fat and they saw CAFOs. They saw... Uh, and just explain what CAFOs is. Uh, it's basically factory farming, the modern farming, the way the animals are treated and the, the processed and their head hormones and uh, all the sort of connotations that that brings. I think a lot of people in the vegan world equated that and then we're using the diet heart hypothesis or the fact that uh, fat will give you a heart attack and stroke and raised serum cholesterol and that was bad high cholesterol was going to give you a heart attack i think all of that was lumped in together uh between the diet heart hypothesis which was beyond i mean predated modern veganism this was like the the mainstream model of cares approach that saturated fat was bad and the vegan world co-opted that as another reason to avoid saturated fats. Um, the one saturated fat, plant fat, is coconut oil. I find that most people in the vegan world are okay with that idea. They may say limit it, but they're not going to demonize it the way they would grass-fed beef or dairy or something like that. So I find that the problem is it's not the fat itself, it's what we've done to it. So I grass-fed beef and saturated fats from clean organic sources can be amazing they're essential for human cellular function and brain function but the destruction of our food quality of food that's the problem it's it's the mechanisms of modern farming it's what we've done to the fat innately uh, and coconut oil i guess is still getting some buzz online as this one doctor say it was poison and it makes for good clickbait and hyperbole online but again it's this this idea the diet heart hypothesis that raised cholesterol 
and eating saturated fats can raise your cholesterol and they're equating that with a problem. And what we know is total cholesterol is a pretty poor predictor for assessing heart attack and stroke. Yeah, in fact, what, do you, what are some of the things that you look at to get a much better idea of somebody who's likely to have a cardiac event or a stroke? So it's interesting that uh, again, about half of the people who have heart attack and strokes ha- actually have normal to low cholesterol. So, yeah, so, so just, they walk in the door at a hospital, they've had chest pains, maybe they've already had a cardiac event, and they get tested, then they have normal to even below average cholesterol. Exactly. That's huge. Most people wouldn't understand or think that. Right. And what's being looked at in the standard model of care, and everybody that's listening to this will know, if it's cholesterol above 200, their doctor's talking to them about a statin drug. But really, that's a very poor predictor for assessing cardiovascular events. So things that we look at in functional medicine are going to be high inflammatory proteins, like high-sensitivity CRP. The functional range is below 1. We want homocysteine, another inflammatory protein, under 7. And we want low triglycerides. We want high HDL and high small dense LDL particles, which is found on a test called the NMR test, so the nuclear magnetic resonance. And these are the proteins that carry cholesterol. They're not cholesterol, but these are the proteins can be oxidized and damaged. Uh, and those are like akin to like little BB bullets, and they can t- tear through arterial walls. That's a problem. So we run an NMR test to see if you're in pattern A or pattern B. Pattern B is this inflammatory uh, subfractionation of these lipid particles. Um, that's a lot of different biomarkers we're looking at in functional medicine beyond just total cholesterol. Now, total cholesterol can be above 200 or under 200, but context matters. Is it a good quality 200 or a bad quality 200? Because if it's high triglycerides, low HDL, high small dense LDL particles, high CRP, but it's low cholesterol, that's not good. We want good context. And I think that that's why we cannot hang our hat on one number, one total cholesterol, and then give them a statin drug if it's above 200. Context matters when you're talking about someone's health and mitigating the risk factors here are super important. And guess what? There's so many amazing uh, lifestyle applications you can bring into someone's life to naturally improve the, the context of these cholesterol markers or lipid markers or uh, these cardiovascular risk markers. And that's what our attention is given to in functional medicine. You know, you named a test called the NMR particle size test. Uh, I know you have a good article on it. Dr. Hyman does too. We'll make sure we link it up in the show notes. This is a test. That is a standard test that's available, but you know, talking to my brother-in-law, Dr. Neil Patel, who's a cardiologist in San Diego at Kaiser, you know, he shared that he didn't even really know what to do with the information. He was taught about this test in school, but he was never taught what to do with the information. So another good reason to seek out a functional medicine doctor if you're really looking at your heart health uh, holistically. So going, let's go back to fat and the brain. What do we know about fat and the brain and the connection between the two? So biologically, our brain is 60% fat. Uh, 25% of all your body's cholesterol is in your brain. So it's a cholesterol-rich organ. It's a fatty organ. uh, And depriving your body of these nutrients, fat and cholesterol, is not good. That's why these diets, these low-fat diets, are associated long-term with cognitive decline. That's why it's a potential side effect of statin drugs is cognitive impairment. Uh, So it's something that we have paid the price with starving the brain of what it needs to thrive. And did you feel like your brain was starved when you were on a low-fat, more plant-based approach, not including things like coconut oil and avocado and other stuff? 
Absolutely. Again, I, I, my body wanted to survive, so it survived quite a long time, seven, eight years, with li- eating that certain way. But as soon it, it comes to a point that chronically we do not thrive with that type of eating. And, and what did you notice? You know, it's just interesting always for our listeners to hear. What did you notice yourself personally by not having good quality fats in the diet? Was your memory worse? Like, what, what did you notice? Yeah, brain fog fatigue, and these are ubiquitous things. I mean, you talk to so many people and you will hear that chronic fatigue and just to say, call it fatigue without being super clinical, being tired and having brain fog is so common that people think it's normal. Just because something's common doesn't make it normal. And a lot of times people just settle for this because they're looking around at everybody else around them and they're feeling just as lousy as they are. And their doctor's saying, it's, you're just getting older and this is, this is part of aging. But people shouldn't have to settle for this way of, of feeling because my experience clinically over the past 10 years is that people feel fantastic when they start shifting their diet to this sort of high healthy fat way of eating and they can thrive at any age. Uh, so that's definitely something that I want people to know about. We have similar stories. I went vegan in the year 2000. I was just starting my freshman year of college and I was at a conference here in LA and I saw the president of the people of the uh, ethical treatment of animals, PETA, give a talk uh, to a group of primarily kids who were vegetarian. It was like a Indian youth group and uh, in the Jain community. And uh, she, you know, a lot of people weren't listening. These were already like vegetarian people. She was trying to convince them to go vegan. Then she said something about how acne is caused by, can be caused in some people or aggravated by dairy. And I perked up because I had really bad acne all throughout high school. I thought, okay, you know what? Let me give this a shot. Took, ac- took, a, <laughs> took dairy out of my diet and my skin cleared up in like two months. And I saw the benefits and I thought, oh my gosh, I've gotten to the holy grail. This is the way to go. And much like yourself, I was on a pretty low fat vegan diet, primarily vegan diet with a lot of raw foods for almost six, seven years. And in that period, I was also in college. And while I had tremendous energy, I had immense bouts of also feeling extremely lethargic through the grains and other components of my uh, diet. So we know the benefits of, of, of fat, including it in. Why is it that, and I also noticed that just more distension, you know, feeling more constipated, other challenges. What, what's the challenge with some of the, we talked about the benefits of fat. What's some of the challenges with uh, some of these things that we traditionally think of as great foods, like whole grains and, and other uh, plant-based foods. Yeah, I did not realize we had the same story. That's yeah. really interesting. So again, we all are different, and that's really the heart of functional medicine. We all have different tolerances to different foods. We all have different tolerances to carbs. And uh, the, what we're talking about as far as grains and legumes, some people can handle more than others. Some people can't. So um, the problem are is the carbohydrate load, the actual sugar load of these grains and legumes, because they ultimately are broken down into sugar. Uh, so there's that problem. Some people have different carb tolerances there. And we all, all also have different amounts of lectin sensitivities as well. These are the proteins that are in these grains and legumes. They can be inflammatory to varying degrees for different people. An example would be like they would be in uh, lentils or beans, which maybe we traditionally made through pressure cooking. Mm-hmm. You know, those foods were in my diet a lot growing up, but my mom would always make them with a pressure cooker 
And when I got into college, you don't have time for that. You don't mm-hmm. even have a pressure cooker. You would just make them normally, and I would notice a difference in the way of digesting them. Absolutely. So uh, pressure cooking, uh, and there's like brand Eden Foods, they still have, they pressure cook beans, and they are more digestible. I find with patients that are that still have the beans in these ones that are lower lectins, they do better with. Um, but soaking grains, traditionally preparing them, mitigates the potential inflammatory problems of these lectins. So it's definitely a way to um, make them the best they can be. But if that's the foundation of your diet, uh, and most people aren't soaking their grains and sprouting things, they're just eating the things that are you know quick and easy, Ultimately, those whole grains can cause digestive issues and create inflammation. Let's talk about metabolism for a second. You know, we've all heard the term, he's got fast metabolism and burns through everything he eats quickly, or she's got slow metabolism and it's hard for her to lose weight. Um, How does your approach approach work for different people um, and how does metabolism play into it? So we all have metabolic set points. We all have different, you know, things going on in our body can impact our metabolism. We all have hormonal uh, landscapes, and people can have hormonal imbalances. They can have gut issues that can impact their metabolism. There's a lot of facets to metabolism there that we would look at in functional medicine. Um, but I think really the heart of ketotarian is to be more more metabolically efficient and more metabolically flexible. And that's why I'm really educating the standard Western eater and the plant-based world how to shift their body to ketosis, which is, in effect, making yourself a fat burner, which would be akin to a fast metabolism. Um, So to me, sugar burning, and if someone has an extreme version of that sugar burning, which they have insulin resistance, they are uh, they have metabolic syndrome. That's metabolically slow. Their body's not. Explain metabolic syndrome. Yeah, yeah metabolic syndrome is sort of the precursor to diabetes. So a lot of people can be have metabolic syndrome, but not be diabetic. But they have these hallmarks of metabolic slowness and metabolic inflexibility. So they have higher triglycerides above 100. They have low HDL. They are they're weight loss resistant. Resistant. They're difficult. Uh, they have difficulty losing weight. That's slow metabolism. Um, and research estimates that about 50% of the United States is, to some degree, either having metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, or diabetes. Uh, so this is a lot of people. Uh, and what that is is meta. First of all, it's it's the leading cause of heart attack and stroke. It's not good. It's a problem. Uh, insulin resistance. But we. We also know it's metabolically, it's difficult to lose weight. So another alternative is to shift them into ketosis, which is that fat burning state. Um, Super important point. You know, I think it's just always a good reminder on this podcast here to explain the traditional approach versus the functional approach. You know, a lot of people go to their doctor, they don't feel well, they don't look well, and they go in for their annual checkup. And if they don't have full on diabetes or another diagnosable disease, their doctor says, "Hmm, you're okay, you know, Get a little bit more, continue to eat a little healthier, get a little bit more exercise. I want you to lose your, I want you to drop your weight a little bit, maybe 10 pounds or so, 20 pounds. Um, But in the instance of a functional medicine doctor like yourself, you might actually say, well, yeah, you don't have diabetes now, but you have this whole spectrum. And if, you know, if on a scale of one to 10, if 10 is full blown diabetes or some sort of other diagnosable disease, Right now you're at a six and you're headed well on your way there because you have this thing called metabolic 
syndrome and these different markers for it. I think it's always useful to highlight to people just because you don't have a diagnosable disease doesn't mean that something isn't wrong. Walk me through your day a little bit. I want to just pause. We have a ton more questions about ketotarian, but walk me through your day. Health is always personal, and I think when people get a chance to understand what you do, it creates a picture in their head of what's, uh, what's possible, what a day looks like. So what's a day in the life look like for Dr. Will Cole when it comes to ketotarian? So I wake up in the morning, as we all do, right? And I have a moment of gratitude and kind of I see patients all day long. So I have to stay focused. I, I get to the clinic. I, I go over the schedule with my team. And I set an intention for everybody on the schedule. I really say, okay, where are they at clinically on the practical side of it? But also, how can I be of service to them? How can I meet them where they're at? And I take that responsibility that we have being in functional medicine very seriously of dealing with these difficult cases and not wanting to add to their pile of doctors and not wanting to add to the pile of labs that they've been through and say, how can I be there for them to really deal with their health problems so they can move on with their life. So it's my morning's really immersed in that and how can I be there for the people on my schedule. Practically speaking, uh, wellness-wise, I'm fasting in the morning typically. So I typically will intermittent fast. Uh, I will only eat between noon and 6 p.m. So I'll fast uh, those other days, the other time in the day. So I'm not eating in the morning and I'm drinking water, I'm drinking tea. I drink Earl Grey tea because it has bergamot in it and bergamot uh, has been shown to enhance autophagy or cellular repair, which intermittent fasting also increases autophagy. Um, but so I can amplify the benefits of intermittent fasting with this Earl Grey tea. For people that are listening, you want to get the Earl Grey tea with the real bergamot in it. A lot of times they'll add like the natural, like uh, like the synthetic versions of it, just the flavor of bergamot, not the actual essential oils from bergamot. And I've also just got water and put bergamot essential oil in it as well. But it's basically a citrus essential oil uh, from Calabria in Italy. And there's a lot of cool research looking at intermittent fasting and autophagy and bergamot. So that's what I'm doing in the morning. And then I eat ketotarian type meals for lunch and dinner. So it's plant centric. It's a lot of good healthy fats, avocados, eggs, wild caught fish. It's very plant centric uh, for my lunch and my dinner. And then I'll maybe have like a nut butter or something for a snack if I want to. But because I'm fat adapted, I don't have the hangriness. I don't have the irritability. I'm, I don't have to, I'm not compelled to be thinking about the next meal because I'm satiated and I'm eating when I'm hungry. Um, and it's one thing to feed yourself when uh, you eat this way. It's another thing to feed your family. And we're, have your son actually who's sitting here. <laughs> uh, what about your family? You know, it's, it's even sometimes a struggle just to get kids to eat more vegetables for mm -hmm. certain parents or they're just getting started. Um, what are ways that you can bring it in? What are tips that you've seen in your own life that you can help them continue to eat healthy and, and, and make progress, especially when you have kids in the picture? Yeah, I think it's important. We all, those of us with kids, we all know our kids are different and they have different tastes. Some are pickier than others and they all have... You know, you have to speak to them on that level, wherever they're at. And for me, and I think it's always benefited uh, us as parents, my wife and I, is that we educated our children, my son and my daughter, age appropriately, 
with all the cool things that foods can do. I don't want, especially with my daughter, I don't want to put shame around food. I don't want to make her obsessive about food. I think that uh, it, that's an unhealthy relationship with food. But make food fun and make food amazing, delicious medicine. And this isn't about all the foods you can't eat as a kid. This is about how can you nourish your body with really yummy foods. Uh, and I think that is now my son, he's here with me in LA this week. He's going to the restaurant. He is saying to the server, this is what he can has. Hey, does this have gluten in it? No. Okay. Can I substitute this with this? He's 12 years old and he's navigating the menu and it's not f from, uh, sh shame or dogma or rules. He's owning this for himself. That didn't happen overnight, but uh, as we kind of show him what food can do for your health, then they start owning it for themselves. And that's the transition that I think all of our kids, what we hope all of our kids to, to have for themselves. That's great. Uh, let's go back to ketosis and the idea of it. Sometimes the word can seem intimidating because it conjure, conjures up pictures of people who are constantly testing uh, their urine to see how many, where their number of ketones are, right? So let's first explain what does that mean? When you're testing the ketones, in your body, what does that mean? And is this something that you recommend to people? I don't know, I do not test for ketones. I, I, and I actually don't recommend people to do it for the most part, the average listener, the average person that just wants to be healthy, I recommend just keeping it simple. I think there should be a grace and a lightness to wellness. And for me, I don't wanna have to test ketones. I want food to be enjoyable and be simple. And, and can you explain what ketones are and, and what process they play in the ketosis? Yeah, sure. So ketones are something that your body naturally produces from the liver to fuel your body, fuel your brain, fuel your metabolism, lower inflammation levels, fuel mitochondrial biogenesis, a lot of great things that ketones do. The only clinical way to know if your body's in ketosis is to test. I wouldn't recommend urine, but even though you're right, most people are testing urine strips. Longer term, it's not a good indication. Uh, the gold standard is blood testing, similar to glucometers, little prick on the finger and you can measure blood ketones to see if you're in nutritional ketosis and then amazing uh, advancements in technology uh, breath meters are great as well and I actually prefer if someone's going to test I like the breath meter um, just so they don't have to prick the finger of if they don't want to do that I think the breath is a good non-invasive way to test for ketosis if someone's going through health problems and they're using the ketogenic diet or the ketotarian approach a plant-based approach to uh, improve their health I would say for those people, they're gonna to wanna to test at least for a while to see if their body's in ketosis and to manage their condition with by themselves or with their doctor. But uh, longer term, once you realize what works for your body and what doesn't, and you build that metabolic flexibility from being in ketosis, I find that most people don't have to test longer term. They may do it at the beginning, but then as they're getting savvy with this, their body is fat adapted and they don't have to test longer term. But um, I prefer just going off how you feel. If someone feels more alert, they have more energy, they're losing weight, uh, they don't have to uh, eat all the time because it's like a, that slow burning fire log uh, of healthy fats, they can go longer times without eating. And that's intermittent fasting will put you in ketosis, but conversely, 
being fat adapted, you will randomly intermittent fast because you're not hungry all the time. So one of the foundational aspects of ketotarian is eat when you're hungry. But the more fat adapted you are, you're hungry less, which is what, what makes it so sustainable because as we know, most diets fail because there's only so long you can go on sheer willpower, but then you get super hangry and irritable and you give in to the, the cookies and the junk food. When you're fat adapted, that is way less likely to happen. Um, thank you for that. And yes, I meant, I meant blood. <laughs> I meant pr pricking your blood yeah. and testing on there, not urine. My apologies. Uh, and, and now you see products that are out there, just like anything, just like gluten-free, just like any trend that's out there that becomes big. Now you're starting to see products that are out there where let's say somebody's selling androgynous ketones that people would take and make part of their supplement routine to help with the process of ketosis. Is that real? Is it not real? What's your opinion on it? Yeah, so for um, extra energy, if someone wants to get exogenous ketones, they definitely can benefit from that. It's going to raise, and I've seen studies where people don't even change their diet, but they take these exogenous ketones and they still get, get and raise blood ketone levels. Uh, it's, that's missing the point. I, I, I would rather the body burn its own fat for fuel and get it from real foods. But I think exogenous ketones can be great for people who want to add healthy fats into their life. They want to add it, have it into their drink or their coffee or their tea and add some exogenous ketones. I think it's great. It's fuel. It's good brain fuel. People are going through brain fog and fatigue. They can explore that with their intermittent fasting. I think it's fantastic. Food just should be primary. So I wouldn't depend on this as sort of this thing that's necessary it's it's a nice thing but it's not necessary for ketosis your main goal is to help people feel better and through this ketotarian diet and adding more fat to people's bodies and fueling their body differently um, that's something that they'll experience for yourself personally because you mentioned you don't measure ketones in your blood how do you know when you've gone off the mark a little bit. What's the first signs yourself? You've been doing this for such a long time and it doesn't seem like a lot of willpower is involved. You just do it because you feel good. But maybe there was a period of time where you'd find yourself, whether it's a vacation, whether it's something else, where you weren't eating this way. What's the first thing you notice that's different about your health or how you feel? Yeah, I think it would probably be the cravings. And I'm going for like the healthier versions of things, but I crave sugar more the more I have it. And I know most people that are listening to this, will re it'll resonate. Even if it's coconut sugar, even if it's maple syrup, the more you're having these healthy treats, and obviously the unhealthy treats, the more you want tend to want to go back to them. Sort of perks that insulin beast up and you start having to eat more of it. So I think that's the, the top thing for me. For some people, they'll have inflammatory flares, they'll have brain fog, they'll have fatigue. For me, it's not that extreme, but definitely can be. Uh, the more someone depends on these foods, it can create an insulin problem, which will throw off your blood sugar, and then you have that whole cascade of events that we're trying to avoid. Which is crazy because there's some people that know and will state it with such intensity that I have to have several something or several pieces of some candy or chocolate or other things that is very sweet or that cake because I know my body craves it and I know that I'll have a sugar crash if I don't have it. How long do you see that somebody usually has to follow the ketotarian method that's outlined in the book before they notice those cravings start to shift? What I explain in ketotarian is to Go plant-based keto, and again, that can be vegan keto, vegetarian keto, or pescatarian keto for eight weeks to make that metabolic shift to being a fat burner. And then from there, 
because we're all different and because functional medicine is what I live and breathe and I want to personalize it and not make blanket statements forever and ever, I want people to have a grace and lightness to make this their own. And I teach in the book how to do cyclic ketotarian. They can moderate their carbs and then lower it. They could um, do more of a seasonal approach too where maybe they're in more ketosis for the winter and in the summer they're enjoying the fruits that are seasonal. Um, so I think that's what I would recommend is to, to, to try this ketogenic approach in a healthy plant-based way for eight weeks, for two months, uh, and then from there they can ebb and flow with it and really make it their own. I want to talk about recipes because at the end of the day, it's all about food and what people make. What are some of the what are your favorite recipes? Let's start off with, I'm going to run through the day and just run me through a recipe that you like. And um, if you can pick some that are in the book, that'd be great too. So people know that they can get those. So for breakfast, breakfast is a tough one. I think probably the toughest meal of the day because people often start that with heavier carbs, a lot more sugar. They're used to, we equate breakfast with being sweet things. So run me through some of the favorite things that you like to have during, during breakfast. Well, I know you're fasting. Yeah. So somebody who's in the transition or on occasion when you do have breakfast, what would be the things that you would have? Sure. So in Ketotarian, there's over 81 different recipes. So there's definitely a lot to pick from. And there's definitely a lot of breakfast ideas. We have meal plans in the book, too, to make it practical. And if some people just like the ritual of breakfast, and I'm not shaming anybody for that, they can enjoy their breakfast and eat decadent, delicious, Ketotarian-friendly foods. Uh, so for breakfast, I think one of the cool things about Ketotarian is that we have these smoothie recipes, which seems counter intuitive to ketosis. I don't think a lot of people in the keto world are like, I can never have a smoothie. But if you look at the macros of these smoothies we have in Ketotarian, they're one of some of the lowest carb, higher healthy fat recipes in there. And there's something super simple. So I think somebody's just getting started. They don't want to intermittent fast. Some of these Ketotarian smoothies we have in there that are using good healthy fats and they're using low glycemic fruits like berries and coconut milk are in there and some good adaptogenic uh, herbs in there as well. They could do that for breakfast. Uh, for lunch, we have two that I love. I love the zoodle, uh, zoodle bowl, which is zucchini uh, noodles. That's pesto. Or uh, they have, we have this Buddha bowl that's really nice too. And uh, what's also on the cover is one of the recipes in the book. It's the egg avocado. It's avocado with egg on there, uh, which is amazing. And then for dinner, I love this albacore uh, tuna salad with grapefruit and avocados. So that's a simple meal. Those are recipes from the book. But again, there's over 81. You can mix and match depending on what you want to do. Sweeteners are a tough thing for people. We just talked about sweet breakfast. Um, I know in the book you address this. Uh, what's your approach to sweeteners? And how would you suggest that someone make the transition to moving away from sweeteners that they use in their coffee and other parts of their diet. Yeah. So the in ketotarian we have like definitely the sugars, sweeteners you want to avoid. We have healthier options for family members that maybe aren't ketogenic. And then we have the ketotarian approved ones which are the healthy real food alternatives uh, in the keto world. So that's going to be erythritol, like sugar alcohols, xylitol, monk fruit and stevia or stevia those are going to be the keto low carb friendly that are still healthy sweeteners they sh still should be used in moderation excess can cause digestive issues it's a treat these are for treats like little keto 
cookies or things that you want to have or the fat bombs that are out there and we have recipes in the book for that so treats they're not the foundation of your meal you're not adding those to breakfast lunch and dinner but there's still things you can avoid there's still things that will drastically on a lower level increase uh, insulin they're going to do minimal things as far as insulin are concerned so they are definitely things that people can implement when they're wanting a treat do you have a favorite out of the ones you mentioned i know there's been some early sort of thoughts about okay maybe xylitol could impact a little bit of gut bacteria you know we probably need some more research on that a lot of people have been moving to monk fruit recently you see it more in products and other stuff that's out there do you have one uh, that you like more out of that group yeah i like pure stevia leaf like the green powder it's not like the white processed stuff it's just the actual leaf that's ground up i like that and i like monk fruit so if i had to pick again Generally speaking, I like the least refined options out there. I think that's a safe bet, but those would be my two top favorite. Um, I want to go back to you, you know, when you were in your uh, starting off and had become vegan and were doing plant-based approach, a lot of carbs, maybe low fat that was going on. One thing that, um, that I noticed was when I was doing that, I, I had a history of being on antibiotics. I would get strep throat every winter and I had a long history of being on antibiotics and how my gut bacteria being decimated because of being on antibiotics. You know, in functional medicine, we never tell people one way of eating or one way of doing things because their underlining functions in their body, like their gut health, are all different. Uh, Like you mentioned, some people have never had really antibiotics at all. So their gut and what they could tolerate might be might be better for somebody who's listening and thinks that they might have had some things that have impacted their gut whether it's a leaky gut uh, antibiotic exposure or they just they don't know what it is but their gut isn't feeling that well um, what would you recommend to them in addition to the ketotarian diet to begin to start to repair the process of healing their gut mm-hmm. well and I think microbiome diversity is important. And a lot of times people with these um, more uh, decimated gut, so to speak, or they have lack of bacterial diversity, they're going to want to think about how can I increase bacterial diversity. The more variety of plant foods one has, it's linked and associated in the medical literature to increase bacterial diversity. So that's why ketotarian is great because it has a lot of different plant foods out there that are still non-starchy, low-carb, ketogenic friendly foods. So I think that anybody that has these underlying gut problems, that's going to be one uh, idea is to have a variety of plant foods. If someone has pretty significant digestive problems, they're going to want to have them cooked and soft and not raw because anybody with these digestive problems will tell you they don't do well on a lot of raw plant foods. They're going to have to cook them down. Lots of soups and stews. A plant-based broth that I like is galangal broth, which is kind of a relative to ginger. So it's a gut-soothing galangal broth. And honestly, one of the non-vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian foods I have, actually the only non 
vegan, vegetarian, or pescatarian food in ketotarian is bone broth. Because as a functional medicine practitioner, I've seen amazing clinical benefits of that. I couldn't help but educate them in the book to say, look, this is, if you're gonna bring something in that includes meat, uh, bring this in for your ketotarian journey for these eight weeks because it's so such a good, powerful gut healing food. So I think intermittent fasting is one way to give your gut a break and allow to restore. And a lot of these people with these uh, digestive problems and SIBO and histamine intolerances will tell you they do amazing with intermittent fasting. They're giving their gut a break. And the more they're leaning into these intermittent fasting protocols, their wiggle room, their gut has more strength. It's definitely not a quick fix. I don't want to oversimplify it. These things take time to heal. But the more they're leaning into these practices of gut soothing uh, practices, the light is at the end of the tunnel for them. You know, I was talking to, again, our mutual friend, Max Lugavera, and he was saying he's been thinking a lot about people who tweet at him or post on his Instagram DM who say that, you know, they feel lifetimes better on the carnivore diet. That's where people are eating no vegetables and just meat. And that's a small, very small, but growing population that's out there. And he was reflecting on, he was saying, you know, I try to take people at their experience, right? And he was thinking that a lot of people end up doing better initially on that because their digestive system is so messed up that any amount of vegetables is kind of throwing them off because their digestive system is messed up. And there's people like that who swear that they were eating a ketogenic diet or way like that, and then they go vegan. I mean, there's even people on Instagram that you see that are like only eat fruit, and I eat a high fruit, you know, diet um, and feel better. But I think this goes back to your, well, one, I want to see if you have any comments on that. And number two, it seems like it goes back to your larger idea that okay, something can be good temporarily and it can work temporarily. We don't want to discount people's experiences. But the question is, how does it leave your body feeling long-term? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the carnivore diet, again, it's way better than the standard American diet, but it is the ultimate elimination diet approach. You're eating one class of foods. Um, so gut problems are ubiquitous and a lot of people do have sensitivities to these raw vegetables so just having meat for a time can be good and i don't even disagree i think that people should experiment with it if they want to and see how they feel on it it's just not sustainable long term for your gut microbiome from a phytonutrient standpoint from a fiber standpoint it's not sustainable especially the way that people are doing it in america on social media that kind of thing but short-term elimination diet approach i don't think a carnivore diet is a bad idea and honestly i've seen some good success with it clinically from there we're going to have to start healing the gut we're going to start getting more variety of foods most people are going to aren't going to want to do that long term um but look i mean the more diverse your plant foods are the more diverse your microbiome there is research to show like the hadza tribe in tanzania their microbiome diversity actually increased the season that they had less vegetables and had more meat. But guess what? The Hadza in Tanzania were drinking drinking blood and eating like raw meat. So unless all the carnivore eaters want to go and full on Hadza, they aren't going to have bacterial diversity in the microbiome long term. They're eating the processed meats and the bacon and all that stuff. Short term, fine. Long term, what are you going to do for ultimate, ultimate wellness? So I want to run through a list of a few different areas and just get your thoughts on it. You know, whether it's you know, overrated, underrated, or like, if you think like, you know, what, what your opinion is on it. So, um, ketogenic shakes on the market, 
Have you experimented with any, any that you like? Or again, is it better off you just make a simple recipe at home? Yeah. So again, we have recipes in Ketotarian that are smoothies and they're super delicious. I have had, I think it's the Caveman Shake. They're based in LA. They're really delicious and they definitely would be Ketotarian friendly. I like them. They're a treat. I think I love these companies that are smart. They're using quality ingredients and they're giving good quality options for people that are looking for easy stuff that are already already prepared. So if people want to have the already prepared stuff, then there's great companies out there. Do your research, read labels and get them. I think you should support companies that are trying to provide good quality food on the market. Like I'm a huge fan of that. Um, but most people, they're not, they're gonna, they're gonna, not gonna do that every meal. They're gonna have to make some things on their own. Um, maybe not everybody, but I think most people are gonna buy that as a treat, but then they have to fall back on making food themselves. Green juices, most green juices that you see out there in the market, thoughts on them? I think if it's just, green juices can be masked uh, with tons of fruit, and just because they're green, they're called green juices. So you wanna read what's in the green juice. Is it tons of fruit? Look at the fruit sugar content, and if it's just vegetables with lemon, lime, or grapefruit, uh, then I'm for them. I think that they're great, uh, great drink to have. It's refreshing, especially when it's hot outside. People can enjoy those green juices. They're gonna be less sweet. Um, people like the green juices that are super sweet. Look, once in a while, that's a treat that's fine. It's, I, it's a lot of sugar. Just because it's green doesn't mean it's the best thing to, to have be your staple. Uh, our office here is here in Santa Monica. You can turn down any street, left, right, up, or down, and see a sign for acai bowls. Thoughts? <laughs> Again, real food, better than the standard American diet. I would have it as a treat. I wouldn't have it as part of your ketotarian, plant-based ketogenic approach. But if you wanna do a sort of a cyclic ketogenic approach where you're doing like about four or five days of ketosis and then have an acai bowl and have some more fruits in your diet the other two days, I think that's great. And some people do great with that sort of approach. Okay, last one that I'd love to get your opinion on. You talked about Earl Grey. What are your thoughts on coffee? People starting the morning off with coffee, whether they're intermittent fasting or, or not. Yeah, so I think coffee can be great. You want to get good sources of it. Make sure it's organic. Uh, I know you know there's certain brands that are testing them for mold as well, because uh, coffee beans can be higher in mold. I think that is good. But if it's good quality organic coffee, it could be great. It increases lipolysis. It can be good brain energy function. Uh, I think it's fantastic. If someone's going to intermittent fast, I'd prefer them not to put. MCT oil or anything in it and just have it be the coffee by itself but that's not to say that someone couldn't have it and why is that because I want the body to be in a full fasting mode without any digestion uh, stimulation no insulin stimulation and if ultimately if people are intermittent fasting a lot of people are doing this for fat loss I want the body to burn its own fat not this dietary fat that you're putting in the morning that's not to say you can't do that sometimes because I think people are doing that mainly like the butter coffees and the MCT oils are doing it from an energy standpoint if they're doing it from an energy standpoint then that's fantastic I think that's great but if you're doing it from a fat loss standpoint I would prefer just the plain coffee by itself I said that was the last one this is the last one uh, big study released this week on alcohol and how alcohol uh, really there's no proven value to alcohol in any 
sort of context. Huge study. We'll link it up in the show notes. People can refer to it. Uh, I should have sent it to you in advance to take a look at it. I don't know if you saw the news. It was on NPR, BBC, a bunch of places. But, um, and then there's the realities of it, right? What are your thoughts on alcohol, uh, and how does that fall into the world of ketotarian? So I haven't read the study, but I do see patients all day long. So I definitely see this nuanced conversation that people that I have to have with people on a regular basis about alcohol and how that fits into their wellness journey. Um, I tell people for the eight weeks in ketotarian to go alcohol free. There are definitely safer alcohols you can bring in once you are have done those eight weeks because like um, like the clean organic wines like dry farm wines actually can really improve blood sugar markers lower insulin levels and actually can enhance some people's ketosis Um, and there are other drier like low sugar clean alcohols that people can do great with in small amounts i don't like it from a liver standpoint i don't like it from a gut health standpoint it should be just like the tree a very low amount occasionally but what about for you? How does it show up in your life? I don't um, drink. How often? I don't you drink. You don't drink? I don't drink at all. How long have you not drank? My, basically my whole life. Okay. Yeah, it's not, not been my thing. Um, but what, what recommendation do you give to your patients? Because I think that's the challenge when people say in moderation. Everybody has a different definition of moderation. Yeah. So coming from this perspective, if ideally uh, it was something that somebody wanted to enjoy every once in a while, what's Dr. Will Cole's recommendation of that every once in a while and what's that amount? So it really depends on the landscape of their health because every once in a while means different things for different people. So I think it's down to the individual of saying, okay, how do they feel when they drink? What do their labs look like? It's very detailed specifically of just me talking to patients and tracking their real life. Some people can get away with more. Some people have really no wiggle room. They have like one glass and they feel horrible and it's impacting their health. So it's definitely not a clear cut answer. I know it's not people, people want the specific number. There is no specific number, uh, but it's down to the individual and finding out their own tolerance for these things. I would say ultimately less is best for most people because a lot of people, it's just part of their culture and they know instinctively this is too much for me. You need to check yourself and really cut back on these things that are ultimately not serving you. I'm going to ask you a different way because I know our audience wants to know. So what would be your upper limit, (laughs) right? What would be your upper limit? If somebody is uh, not noticing that there's a difference, is not working with a functional medicine doctor, they think that they're in general good health, they're following, you know, either the ketotarian diet or the vegan diet. Um, What's your upper limit? of where you don't want people to be on? The upper limit. Upper limit, yeah. I would say, and I'm probably being gonna be the bad cop here, but I would say two to three times a month, and this is not getting drunk either, this is just like a drink or two. Which is four to six ounces of, yeah. of let's say, wine. Yeah, it depends on their size and all of that stuff and their you know own tolerance there. But I would say that's probably the upper limit. If I saw more than that, as a pay, for my patients. Yeah. I'm talking about for my patients that I want to get them super duper healthy. If I saw more than that, I would say, look, we need to talk about this. And maybe that's being me being strict as a functional medicine practitioner, wanting their labs to look super great and for them to achieve their health goals. They've entrusted me to get them super healthy. So I have a responsibility to get them there the fastest and the best way. Um, but look, if, if they're not my patient, I, I guess I'd have to really talk to them, but I would say two to three times a month. That's great. That's about what I have have about a month and I think that it's great that you chimed in because a lot of times people are so used to hearing you know the recommendations and advice out there 
Well, one, they say doctors have this way of copping out, which they say, if you're not drinking, don't start, <laughs> right? Then if you are drinking, then you can have up to this amount daily. So you see so many Americans that are having daily alcohol consumption, which is wreaking havoc on their gut bacteria. The thing is, is if you start eating this way, the ketotarian method, some of the other methods that you talked about, the elimination diet, you can see the impact and the effect of that alcohol has on your body. I think right now, most people don't see it because they can't feel it. They can't distinguish it from anything else that's happening. So you heard it here, two to three times a month is what Dr. Will Cole says. <laughs> if you don't like the advice, you can hit him up on Twitter or Instagram or all the other places. <laughs> Dr. Will Cole, thank you so much for joining the Broken Brain Podcast. Tell us where we can find your book and where we can learn more about all the great stuff you do and your handle on social media. Yeah, everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And that's my handle for Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, and uh, the book is on Amazon and elsewhere. Yep, it's on, you can get information about Ketotarian on my website, but it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those book websites. Awesome, that's great. Well, we'll be sure to link up all those inside of the show notes. And the book is out on the 28th, which if you're listening to this podcast, that was in the past, so you can already get it. So go and support the book. If you have vegan friends, tell them about the Ketotarian. If you have friends that eat meat, tell them about the Ketotarian book. They'll appreciate you for it. Again, Dr. Will Cole, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.